0: Hello everyone, I'm Meghna Srinivasan and today I'm excited to be talking to Richie Sarna, CEO of Phoenix Payments. Phoenix is creating payment processing infrastructure as a service for merchants, aiming to help companies manage and monetize payments by becoming their own payment processor. Phoenix is three years old, based in San Francisco, and has raised $17.5 million in Series A funding from Bain Capital Ventures, Visa, and Insight Partners, among others. Welcome to the Borton FinTech Podcast, Richie.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: It would be great if you could just tell us a little bit more about your background first and how you landed upon FinTech and Phoenix.
1: Yeah, no. Um, So it's a a little windy story. Actually, I'm originally from Southern California. I ended up going to college at Harvard and I studied political science. Not really sure what I wanted to do. I thought I might be going into... uh, corporate law and I I did my first summer of investment banking and read one contract and said this is probably not for me and so instead I ended up going and starting my career in management consulting uh, where I was working at boozing company doing financial services and tech and telecom and it's kind of a little bit where I started to catch the, the the sort of fintech bug but I think it really wasn't until I started looking more into going into venture capital thinking about investing and just kind of ultimately deciding hey instead of just doing the investment maybe I should go out and try to build my own company so I moved out about 2013 to San Francisco, where I started teaching myself software engineering. It was a big that's jump. A, that's a big jump? It was a big investment. People thought I was really crazy. <laughs> My mom asked me why I was going into IT. Not that there's, <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with IT, but she's like, what? What? I'm a little seems confused. It seems a bit of a switch from management consulting yeah, yeah.
0: what's happening here? <laughs> I had
1: a lot of friends who were like, wait, wait, you're 25 and you're going through like a quarter-life crisis, so you decided software engineering was the way to go. Uh, I was like, I think this software thing is going to be around for a little while. I should go and do it. And so moved into a hacker house, actually not too far from the office right here. Uh, and the first people that, that I met out in San Francisco was a, a payment company called balance payments okay uh, and so we were the the first payments API for marketplaces crowdfunders, and platforms so this is
0: like a predecessor to your stripes and squares of the world
1: uh, so stripe had actually already been around um, uh, okay. balance was also a part of Y Combinator also backed by Andreessen but stripe sort of got started off in a very simple so sort of the the vanilla e-commerce world where it's mm. many buyers one seller right imagine sort of Nike selling something right. online Right. Um, there really hadn't been anything that was solving for what we like to call dual-sided commerce right okay you think about you know your marketplaces like amazon ebay you think about you know uber and the uh, ride sharing companies crowd funders these b2b you know sort of SaaS platforms that was really combining traditional uh, merchant services and treasury management functions which historically had been two different parts of a bank Uh, and that's something that people hadn't really solved for it's the reason why airbnb had to go out and build all of this infrastructure from day one, and actually, Brian Chesky uh, was an investor in Balance because he saw how difficult it was for Airbnb to build out a lot of the right. software.
0: And at Balance, like, were you working as an engineer building out these systems, or like, what was that experience like?
1: It was an incredible experience. It, I, I definitely had no business uh, <laughs> cutting my teeth in, in the engineering world there. They had some of the best, smartest engineers around. People who were contributing to Python, to Ruby. People who um, helped develop Chef and I basically begged and pled the CTO, the VP of engineering and the founders to give me a shot and so I, this is a true story, I would send them emails every single day saying, hey, can I interview? Hey, can I interview? And like, <laughs> they, they, they actually ignored me for the beginning and finally I convinced them if they let, let me bring them donuts that they, that they would give me an interview and, and at least they would get that out of it.
0: That's the that's the lesson for someone looking for a job at Phoenix. Yeah, Email, yeah. <laughs> jobs, finally get them donuts. I, I I'm not a big donut guy
1: uh, but I do appreciate the hustle and I think that was something that I, that I picked up from my days in banking, is just that that hunger and that hustle, and it's actually one of our, our core company values is always hungry and always hustling. I think that's something that that everybody really embodies. And so I finally convinced them to give me a job, and I promised them I'd be the first one in, last one out, and I did that for about two years. And so started off, they were paying me uh, I think it was like three thousand dollars a month, so that I could pay that's off that's
0: my. That's a bit tough in San I must say.
1: I, I, this is also true. I live in a in a Chinatown apartment with uh, six other guys. <laughs> To be able to make it, sound, I feel like
0: that's breaking some sort of building code. fire safety. Oh, it's
1: it's a hundred percent borderline. Some kind of slumlord situation <laughs> that we were going through. I lived above a Chinese dress shop called the Dragon Seed. So that was how hardcore it was. And I, I did just that. I would go in there, I, I would make the, some of the engineers like breakfast in the morning so they felt <laughs> bad that they had to teach me. And they just threw me in the wild, like doing the developer integrations, helping out with technical support, building the SDKs, building the developer docs, then building a lot of the backend components. So you know, that's where I started to learn all the languages, learn how people were using the APIs, um, building out some of like the dashboard components and basically anything they would give me, I would take. So it was it was an incredible learning experience, one from an engineering perspective, but also just to understand the world of payments. Right. Mm. I think there's a lot of big payment companies that have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of engineers. But once you've joined a payment company that's, you know, five, six years out, most of the core infrastructure has already been built. Right. So seeing something get built from the bottom up and being a part of that, you really start to understand the intricacies of these payment systems and why it's so difficult to do it. You're right. not just focusing on one little widget, you're understanding how the payment networks work, right? tokenization, PCI compliance, all these things that are really necessary for building any sort of payment or fintech company.
0: And one question I had here was like, through this experience at Balanced, was it while you were doing that that you found this opportunity where Phoenix could fit in or was that something that happened in, in some other serendipitous way? Like how did the yeah. idea for Phoenix really come
1: out? Yeah, so back in 2015, Balance ended up exiting to Stripe and we migrated all of our customers and I helped lead all of that migration over. Uh, and it was during that time that a few of our, our customers started raising these massive rounds and I was a little confused about why <laughs> Balance had not taken off in the way that I that I had hoped, right? right. Um, and I started looking at, at, at our database and seeing who the highest um, volume customers that we had, both in mm. terms of just general growth and just volumes processed through, through the system. And it actually wasn't our marketplaces. Mm. It wasn't the big name crowd funders. It wasn't any of the household Silicon Valley names. It was a software company that worked in the CrossFit space. Okay. It was another software company that provided software to all the vineyards in Napa, right? Oh, okay. Yeah. So imagine, you know, if you start your own vineyard, you're not going to build your own website. You're not going to build the right. e-commerce Shopify experience you're not gonna build the payment systems, instead they could provide that for you. And the last one was one that was in tourism industry. I think it was that when I really started to understand that you know, it was these vertical SaaS companies that were really embedding payments as a part of their overall experience that were really seeing the fastest growth. And right. because they're the B2B platforms, we don't see them, we don't know those names, we don't even know that they're going on behind the scenes. Right. And so shortly after we started looking at that, we had a number of people in companies very similar to those ones that I described, we started reaching out to all the engineers saying, hey, could you build that same infrastructure that you had developed back at Balanced, but build it in-house for us? Mm. And so that's when we started to realize two things. One, payments you know, was no longer a cost center, it was mm. becoming a profit center, right? Mm. And these companies were trying to unlock the very lucrative world of merchant processing, but didn't have the domain expertise or the technical chops to really build all this infrastructure. So instead, if we could basically productize that, Instill it as a software platform, what would that look like? Mm-hmm. And that's basically what Phoenix is.
0: One question I have here when you talk about this example in terms of productizing it, so whether I'm a vineyard in Napa or if I'm like a completely different business, like a mm-hmm. SaaS software business, is is the product the same or is it like vertical wise that mm-hmm. you build out the product? Like I can imagine yeah. that the nuances would have to be very different, the use cases are different.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think like what you're starting to see is that every single vertical has their own sort of operating system or vertical SaaS platform, right? A software that helps, you know, the the vineyards manage their inventory, their sales, their data, just the, you know, overall UI that they provide uh, to their customers. But behind the scenes, there are core components of infrastructure that are generalizable enough, such as how do you store credit cards? Mm -hmm. How do you perform? Because we're not selling to the vineyard themselves we're selling to the vertical SaaS platform. Mm-hmm. And so the vertical SaaS platform is the one providing the very verticalized user experiences in workflows. We're providing the general infrastructure that sits behind them. Got it,
0: so it could be like an open table is used by a bunch of different restaurants, yeah. and then you would be selling to the open table of the exactly. world. Exactly. Who would then, who don't have the capability to build out the payments piece, mm-hmm. you are like providing all of that infrastructure to them and then they are also able to capture a better part of it get getting a bit of that profit. Oh, absolutely. Just letting it go.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So like our view is that, you know, there's all, you know, people have tried monetizing Mm SaaS and, you know, selling licenses. It's been good, you know, and it's worked. Um, But the best way to monetize your software is through the payments, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that's what you've seen in, in classic examples like MindBody, who's uh, done that for the yoga studio right. industry. Toast, who's done it for the restaurant industry. One of our customers, Lightspeed, who's done it incredibly well. They just went public. Uh, they're based out of Canada. Uh, one of our other customers. Club Essential, who does it for the country club industry. Once you see it, you can't stop seeing it. Right. right. So
0: do you have like, how would you describe your typical target customer? Is there somebody who fits the profile, does not fit the profile?
1: Yeah. So at, at a high level, we view ourselves, as you mentioned earlier, as not a payment company, but a payment infrastructure as a service company. So you could really take any of the various modules that we have as a part of our platform and build your own payment products. Right now, the core target are these vertical SaaS companies, but we do have relationships where we could sell to banks, to other non-traditional looking mm. like networks who might want to be able to use our, our tools and capabilities, any type of fintech, right? Because they're all, a lot of them are doing the same components. They're underwriting a third party. They're running compliance checks, whether that's, you know, identity verification, checking the watch list, the terrorist watch list to make sure that they are, you know, not some sort of bad actor. And a lot of these, you know, all these businesses are involved in the same types of workflows. They're just servicing different industries. Um, So it's usually though a platform that has a dual sided nature, right? It's not just your traditional e-commerce provider.
0: Right. Do you find that Like you see so much like in the news, like if I just think about it, like this payment space is exploding and then you have all these different, like you were talking about it, it's so complex and there are so many different aspects to it. You could be playing in it in so many different ways, either from a perspective of raising funding or getting customers. Is it difficult to explain what the company is? Does it feel like it's very saturated and people are like, you know, getting done with payments? What do you feel? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Just positioning
0: the company is, is it something that you found
1: challenging? No, I mean it, it's funny because five years ago when we were at Balanced, there was this general concept that it was going to be a winner-take-all model, and that mm. the only game in town would be Stripe. Right. And then, like now, you see all of these like massive large right. companies that are coming out of this industry because there's so many different niches, mm. right? Stripe has done a really great job of sort of cornering the developer market, but there's a lot of the other rest of the ecosystem that is up for grabs, and it's also just the fact that we're in the earliest innings of digital payments as a whole, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's something like only 50 to 60% of all global payments are digital today. Yeah. And when you put that in perspective, like the pie is just growing so massively, right? You have companies like Checkout.com, like Adyen, who've just come out, and is now, what, a $20 billion yeah. publicly traded company that yeah. a lot of people haven't heard of. So there's still a tremendous amount of room for innovation. I think there's you know, in the next 10 to 15 years, you're gonna see another 15, 20, you know, of these twenty billion dollar fintech startups that are just being created now. And yeah. a lot of them are gonna be that core infrastructure, companies like Marketa as well, which are just really exciting time to be in this space.
0: Yeah, I think that brings me to my next question. Like, what do you see as like the biggest, most compelling trends in FinTech? Just based on your observation, working balanced and now in Finnex.
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, for Phoenix, our vision has always been uh, based on a simple idea that all software companies are going to become payment companies. Right. And you're starting to see this, you know, payments is just sort of seeping deeper and deeper into the fabric of, of all software. Right. Mm-hmm. A few years ago, we used to talk about. Uh, software. eating
0: into everything. Oh, well,
1: yeah. But even before then, like people. It was funny. I was talking to someone who, who mentioned the term in e tailer Okay. which is like an e, like, like just like any e-commerce store. And I, had, I hadn't heard that term, and now you just, you just assume yeah. that someone has like an online yeah. presence, right? And I think that's just what it's going to be like 10 years from now, right? Marquette has done an incredible job of showing that all software companies can monetize on credit card issuing and debit card issuing. Uh, and I think you're just going to see these other types of fintech and payment products also becoming a part of the the regular you know product offering that every software company is able to provide right and so it'll just become even more invisible right you don't think about airbnb or uber as being payment companies but they are one of the things to just kind of keep in mind is like how difficult this really is mm. to do to create that really differentiated user experience and that commerce experience it takes a lot of work like yeah. we take all these things for granted but it's not easy to do yeah
0: what has been like the most challenging part for Phoenix. Like, is it acquiring customers? Is it just developing the infrastructure? What do you think has been like the biggest like inflection point so far in the journey? Hmm.
1: I think that I mean, anytime you're starting a company, there's no overnight success. Like you talk like yeah. you, you see the survivor bias of all of the startups that made yeah. it and then you hear like all the stories like, Oh yeah, that, that was like incredibly difficult to be able to, to to build. I think, you know, obviously for fintech in particular, the, the most difficult thing is being able to get sort of that escape velocity and being able to get to the point where you can actually bring on live customers because in the first mm. like one and a half to two years, you're just building the infrastructure, right? Like when we, we talk about how our customers, if they were to try to build this in-house, it would take them anywhere between two to three years before they could go live with their first transaction, three to five million dollars. That's not, that's not like it came out of nowhere. we built multiple payment companies and that's like an MVP just to get going, oh, wow. right? If you're gonna you know build something in the FinTech space, you're going to have to go through, and it's in payments, PCI compliance, which is how you are um, able to build a system that's compliant for storing credit cards. Mm. That alone, on average, costs a quarter million dollars and over a wow. year to build in-house. So to put that in perspective, yeah, you want to move fast, but you can't even get the, turn the lights yeah. on until you've done the sort of yeah. basic table stakes. So I think that's really the most challenging thing about what we've had to do and you have to be very frugal. You have to be able to run a lean team, um, to be able to get there.
0: Mm. Yeah. That's fascinating. I never thought about that way because I think like we are so conditioned to seeing this world of, I don't know, just software companies or consumer companies and yeah. it's just like start. Yeah. Just Start. <laughs> yeah. Write, write your first line of code. <laughs> yeah, write your first line of code or like integrate a stripe that's yeah. seven lines of code yeah. and so you're kind of done. How did you maintain the conviction, like it must have taken you like one to two years to just build this then and get this into a form that you could go and get customers. Like, how do you keep going over that time? That feels like a hard stretch.
1: I mean, I think at a certain point you just kind of become obsessed with it, right? And like, it's almost Very like, it, it's, yeah, no, it, it, it is not in any way, shape, or form. I, in that same Chinatown apartment that I was telling you about, I was probably there for the first six months and it was just mm. kind of me and my dog, and I would that was the only kind of human, not even human, but interaction that I would get. And you're just kind of like locked up in that room. You don't get to talk to anybody. Um, You're not really talking to customers. You're kind of getting started. So I think there just has to be a lot of grit. That's a part of it. And just a lot of conviction and, and understanding that, You know, none of this stuff is overnight. And then sometimes when you hear people say that you're crazy, like you just kind of add that fuel to the fire. You're like, oh yeah, maybe I am a little crazy, but we'll get this done. Like, you know, we've we've seen it, we've built it before. I think once you've done it once before, it it, kind of gives you a little bit of that validation of, I know it's going to take a long time. And I know even though I've done it once before, that it's going to take, you know, a considerable amount of time. But, you know, we know that there's something here.
0: Given the experience that you had building it in Balanced before, Has there been, like, some big change in between that, like, upset your plan? Like, was there some big regulatory change, or was there some Mm -hmm. aspect of the infrastructure that you had planned out this way, and it just turned out to be completely different?
1: I think in the world of payments and fintech, there's always going to be a change, right? So, in in general, in software, it's never a set it and forget it. Like, you build the app, and then it's done. Like, you have to continue to evolve your platform. There's maintenance. As it scales, you'll run into challenges. But for payments, you are changing with, you know, new rules. So two right. years ago there was a change to the FinCEN laws in terms of what information you have to collect on submerchants. So, you know, for that yoga studio, you have to know all the owners who have at least 25% of that business. So now mm. just the onboarding information changes. There's changes to the card network rules. And then there's just changes to the overall technology, right? Like a few years ago, there was same day ACH that just got introduced. So being able to update so that you can be on par with the other capabilities that are out there in the market. So yeah, I mean, the, I don't know that there's any single thing that really threw us for a loop. I think you just have to be able to build a platform that is flexible and scalable enough that you can kind of grow with that. Mm-hmm. If you, you know, and, and you only kind of do that when you have that sort of experience before of knowing that the only thing that's constant is the change.
0: Right, right. Looking forward, like what do you think is next for Phoenix? Is it um, getting more customers here? Are you thinking about world domination? What is the next, next uh,
1: step? I mean, I think for, for Phoenix, we're really just focused on how do we build a lasting, iconic FinTech company, right? Mm-hmm. You mentioned Stripe, you mentioned Square. You mentioned, I think we talked a little bit about Maquetta. Like those are all incredible companies, and, and you know that's what we want to be able to grow into is to have something like that that is going to be lasting and it does have a massive impact on on fintech and the payments industry. So that starts really, you know, obviously we're, we're building for our customers to make their lives easier, but it's it's not just about building the best product, but building the best company and finding the best people to build those products Hmm. so a lot of us a lot of what we've been focusing on is building the organization and building for you know something very long term Hmm.
0: yeah I mean I've spoken to Jero on your team, like, during this process. So and Giro told...
1: hired me. Oh, he gave okay. me my first job oh. in payments, yeah. So
0: I know that he's not based in San Francisco, right? No, is he's... that like the norm for your team? Like, are you thinking about this as a remote distributed team? Like, mm-hmm. I think that's definitely like one of those memes in the mm-hmm. in, in workplace today. How is managing that been for you? Um, Yeah. As CEO.
1: So we actually do have two formal offices. We have uh, HQ is based here out of San Francisco, a few blocks from the Wharton campus. And then the second office that we have is out of Cincinnati. So my co-founder, Sean. Leads up that office. And he actually came out of Vantiv, which is now WorldPay, which is where they had their headquarters. So I tried to convince him to move to San Francisco and I showed him my Chinatown apartment and he said, Hell no, <laughs> <laughs> I am not moving to San Francisco. And you know what? I can't blame him for that. So I totally respect his decision and we have made it work. So it is a long distance relationship between us. But I, I mean, I think it's become a lot easier over the last few years to build a, a more distributed team like that because of cool technology like zoom like mm-hmm. the, the like how powerful that is we actually made it a rule probably within the first six months that we wouldn't do any phone conferencing, everything had to be a video conference, yeah, and if you didn't have, if you didn't have Wi-Fi, a great Wi-Fi or a great camera, we would get you one, because you can just have that face-to-face interaction, right, just like we're doing right now, you can just feel that, you know, you know people are focused, you know they're not browsing on the internet, (laughs) you you know, so I think, you know, there's a tremendous amount of talent, like, distributed across the country, people who don't necessarily want to just live in Mm -hmm. San Francisco. And I can't blame them for that. Jiro lived out here and he decided he wanted to start a family mm. and he wanted to do that in Atlanta with his wife and I had total respect for that. And pa- Atlanta is a, a huge payments hub. Right. And we had kind of figured out how to how to build a company like that. And so we do have a few remote team members, um, uh, and especially like on the sales and BD side, a lot of those sales end up being very regional. So it, it works. Yeah. You
0: know? And I think what was super interesting about that for me was you kind of see big companies having a lot of this flexibility, but then you see this kind of advice where everyone's like, oh, at the starting stages when you're really small, everyone should be together and like, oh,
1: yeah. it, out. it definitely takes effort. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that for us, one, one of the things that it really made me excel in was written communication skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we as a company really emphasize written communication and writing things down, writing them well. Um, even as I was never a product manager, but I kind of fell into that role here at Phoenix. Uh, and a lot of it was, hey, we have remote team members, how do I communicate those mm-hmm. requirements in an incredibly flexible and, and, and efficient, excuse me, way? Um, when you're all in the same office, it's easy to kind of iterate, right. and have that quick feedback session, go into a room in whiteboard. Um, when you don't have that, you really have to like, build in the processes, processes early on to put in place, you know, how do you build the product mm-hmm. specs? Um, how do we have weekly meetings? So, like, you know, for most Agile teams, you'll have your daily standup. We actually did that with our BD teams. And our customer support teams. Everybody has that because if we're distributed, we know that we have that one touch point at the beginning of the day where everyone can share what's their blocker, what are they working on, and what do they need help on. Right,
0: right. No, that's super fascinating. I think
1: there's San Francisco is an incredible city, and, and I love it. But there's a lot of domain expertise that you can't right. necessarily get just here. Right. Um, going into you know areas like Cincinnati, where you have you know a really strong fintech, banking, and payments experience. There's there's no ex- a substitute for that type of experience. Got
0: it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, switching gears a little bit, I had some more questions when you were talking about earlier how you just took the leap of faith to move to San Francisco. Um, I think like this is a big, uh, I would say, like two factions where people are like, oh, you need to learn how to code no matter what. And then there's this whole other side, which is like, oh, there are so many no code tools now. You don't really need to get into that. Can it's possible to start great companies and get into any kind of a business without knowing that? Like, what's your take on it?
1: So, um, the reason why I also decided to move out to San Francisco to learn how to code was one of my buddies who was an investor. And I shared a few of my startup ideas with him. He's like, "Those are all great ideas, but no one's going to give you any money because you can't code, <laughs> and because you you haven't worked at a rocket ship startup, and your parents aren't rich, so no one's going to give you uh, any <laughs> any money to fund." Uh, yeah. uh, take uh, yeah. all the take boxes. So I was like, "Okay, well, like I can learn how to do software engineering, and so that's kind of what, what you know uh, motivated mm-hmm. me to move across the country." Um, I mean, I think it really depends on what you're trying to do long-term mm-hmm. and what kind of industry that you're in. If you're, like, really just in a direct-to-consumer type of business and mm-hmm. it's more of a sales lead uh, sort, of, sort of play, mm-hmm. then you probably can get away with it. But if you're really a, a strong technical company, mm-hmm. it's really hard to get respect from engineers if you don't know what they're doing. It's hard right. to even project or product manage them because you don't know how long it takes to do a simple integration. Um, uh, and I think that's, that's really where... Um, I think it's been invaluable for me to do that, and mm. I always went into it knowing that I wasn't going to be an engineer for the rest of my life. Mm. Like I didn't necessarily have any desires to be, you know, the ten x engineer, but really to have a deep uh, understanding of the technology, how to communicate, and it is very overwhelming in the beginning, right? People, a lot of engineers use a lot of big words in the beginning, and like yeah. you don't know what's like an open source tool and what all these things are, and and you know all these different frameworks, and going and having some form of experience, even if it's just for a year really sort of helps accelerate your understanding of, of what you're building. Um, it's hard to sell an API if you don't know what an API does or how right. it works.
0: <laughs> right. The
1: other thing too, is even for, for us, uh, we get a lot of you know partnership opportunities sent our way mm-hmm. um, and people will say, oh, if you integrate in this API, we'll do all these amazing things. Right. And then I'll like spend two seconds reading their APIs I'm like, this isn't a half-built product, it's not even there yet, or anything mm. like that. And like, it saved us from a lot of probably bad investments <laughs> early on in, right. in either different technologies or third party services or partnerships, um, it really helped me a lot um, throughout the the last few years. So I would encourage anyone to at least take a class, right? Mm. Um, Kind of dig in and and it does require a good deal of immersion, right? I still read code every single day. Oh. Um, Yeah, I'm still reading like APIs and still like, you know, helping debug and do all those types of things. Not necessarily pushing code any days anymore, but it's still very much a part of of my day to day.
0: Um, Was it very challenging to like did you you went to some a boot camp or something like that um was it very difficult like technically to learn those skills in that format versus like of course people who have been doing it for four or five years in school
1: i think learning the basics of software engineering is just like learning a language right mm-hmm. you have to immerse yourself where it's just all encompassing and it's just that's all that you eat, sleep, and drink, and mm. read, and that's what it is, and, and that's what the bootcamp forces you sticks. to do. Yeah, it it sticks, um, um, and it's it's just one of those things where you kind of become obsessed with it. If if you try any language, you know whether it's Java or Spanish, and you do it for like two days, and then you don't pick it up for another like five days, you're not going to remember it, right? Right, and so I think that's that's a big part of just, and even becoming a software engineering uh, or software engineer, you know, as a junior dev, and you come out of you know. Uh, a comp site program you probably don't know how to use github you don't know like all right. the different other frameworks and right. tools they do teach you a lot of the great underpinnings of computer science but the day-to-day is you know
0: you learn it on the job yeah
1: you're learning all these things on the job right
0: so that's what balanced was for you where you actually like took what you learned here but like you actually had to build things and that yeah. actually, like really internalized the skills yeah it,
1: t- it teaches you a lot of the problem solving skills too mm. um a lot of software engineering is hanging out in GitHub, Googling and learning (laughs) everything and learning from other people and, and, um, you know, just kind of toying around and practicing and and not getting frustrated. (laughs) Being able to push through those moments where you think you have these mental blocks and not, you know, kind of pulling your hair. Pulling through,
0: like grit. It all comes down to grit. It's
1: all grit, it's all grit. I I tell people when they're like, why do you like startups or like doing this? It seems like it's the most stressful, painful thing. Like, have you ever seen those people who ride bikes up mountains? And you're like, I have no idea why anybody would ever do that. And it's like, you just kind of love the pain of it and the grit. And it's just fun. At a certain point, it's just like flexing any sort of muscle. And it's just, mm. it's very thrilling. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, one question which I think would resonate with a lot of the people who listen to this podcast who um, are working on startups of their own um, is regarding fundraising. So what advice would you have for people who are in that fundraising process?
1: I think that most people who... Uh, go into the fundraising process or haven't done startups think that it's super glamorous mm. and it's not. It's, it's the least amount of fun you ever want to have. Um, it's, it's a lot of it, you know, it is a very iterative process, right? Mm-hmm. And especially in the beginning, you're trying to sell some vision of the world that doesn't necessarily exist and convince right. people that like that is where the future is going. Uh, and if you don't have any proof points and you haven't, you know, sold a, a big company um, that's you know tougher to kind of get over that barrier. And so a lot of it's just understanding that you will get rejected dozens and dozens and dozens of times. and you want to learn from each of those sort of you know pitches that didn't go well and ask yourself like, where did I lose them? Mm. And so I think, From the seed round, I probably pitched like 70, 80 different people. And, you you know, before you get like your first term sheet, the second time around was a lot faster. And I think it was because I invested a lot more in the upfront process, right? Mm. And understanding what is the story that we're really trying to tell here? What's the vision of the world? What are those macro trends that are really pointing in validating what we're doing? So, yeah, I think, you know, one amazing quote that I always think back to when I think about fundraising um, is this tweet that uh, one of our early investors, uh, our earliest investor, Sacha Patel from Homebrew has, that he pinned on his Twitter account, and it's that the only way to raise money is to make them believe. And I think that's really what the core of fundraising, especially in the earliest days, comes down to, right? Sharing your vision, sharing that narrative, and convincing people that this is the future and the way that the world's going. Did you find that
0: as you were developing the the, the story, like, did that help you as well, like, get more belief in, in in the startup? Like, Was it like a self-reinforcing thing?
1: Um, I don't know that it like it reinforced it. I think mm-hmm. what it forced me to do was really step back because mm. oftentimes when you're starting a company, you're so deep in the weeds and I could go like really deep into payment stuff that you would never want to talk about. <laughs> um, but really sitting back and saying, okay, software companies are becoming payment companies and then really saying that story right. and it's really kind of taking yourself back to give them that picture. and like giving them those proof points, sharing that story, and kind of guiding them through that, that, the, the pitch. I think that's a, a huge part of it. And it really forced me to think much more on that higher level, mm-hmm. but also think much more strategically about the business, right? Mm. And when you're so early on, you're just thinking about every little task that you need to do to get done, right? You're being very tactical. Yeah, you're an engineer and you're thinking about what bug fixes you have, what mm. customer support tickets you have. Now you're thinking like on a much higher plane in terms of, you know, why is this such an important Thing that we're building what is the so what of everything mm. <laughs> i spent a lot of time with with chero you were going to before, a bunch of the other team members mm-hmm. and we even brought in some of our earliest uh you know the newest employees on the team and i would put all the slides out up, up there and put two vis- different versions and be like what does this story tell you mm. now what does this story tell you it all makes sense to me right <laughs> but if i have to explain it to somebody else who doesn't know about payments yeah, or it's... doesn't see these trends you're like okay like how do i convince them of this how, how, how do you how you know how do you convey you know, the super complex ecosystem in a 10 minute pitch. Cause really it's, it's like probably you get 10 to 15 slides to present. Like they're not really long decks. Right. Right. And you're trying to convey this very complex idea to them. And then it's just a ton of questions.
0: Right. Um, you mentioned before that like, um, something about like having the network with these founders, like you need to meet so many people, 70, 80 people before you might get someone to believe in you and invest in you. Was it very hard to meet people? Uh, people who were in yeah. investing. Were there any like
1: tips or tricks? At balance, when you're you know just engineering, oftentimes you kind of just get put in a box, and you don't get as much mm. exposure out to um, like investors, to customers, and that's actually something that we did at balance uh, at Phoenix now that we like to introduce all of our team members to our investors. Mm. So when we had a closing Series A dinner, we actually did it at the Bain offices because I wanted them to be able to oh, leverage that part of the network. Cool. Yeah, I mean, in like um, Beth uh, from Homebrew, she's, she's the head of people there. I introduced her to all of our team members to help um, them think about how do they build teams and hire and recruit. Mm. Um, because if, you know, your investors are supposed to be value-add and they, I only have so many hours in a the day, they give okay. me leverage by making and empowering our team members. Um, but... I didn't have that at back of balance, and so this time around when I was doing it, I, I did feel a little, you know, um, out of my element, and so I went to the few like VC friends that I had and just asked them like, "Hey, what should I do? How do I run a process?" I went to you know my buddies who had founded companies before and asked them like, "What would you have done differently? What were the things that you found most effective?" Because you have so many blog posts that are out there that are telling you how to do things. Yeah. And, like, hearing it straight from people who are doing it or who are sitting on the other side, yeah. is really really insightful. Um, And then one thing that i ended up doing and and i had a few friends who were in VC who told me this was dumb and it ended up being the best thing that i did uh was i just did a data export of my entire linkedin and i just checked a box on anybody who was in tech who was in san francisco or who was in investing and not even just vcs like i went to like my friends who were like growth equity investors and just said hey this is what i'm trying to do i'm trying to fundraise here's my deck do you have any like you have any feedback Feedback. do you know people Mm -hmm. that you know would be interested in it and you'd be surprised, but I mean, a lot of people wanna help. They mm. wanna be helpful, right? Mm. And getting over that sense of anxiety of asking for help and just saying, Hey, you know, can you help me? Can you spend thirty minutes and just either review this deck or, or tell me about people that you think this might be interesting to? And people, you know, generally will come out and be very supportive.
0: Um, I'm curious, like when you're fundraising, is that like what you're doing 24 7 like it just seems like as a process very difficult to run like very oh, hard to run as a when process.
1: you, you no know, when you run a process you run a process like mm. there's a lot of people who are like oh just you know kind of have meetings here and there and yeah. you, like no this is this is your job right, right. And if you're running a business you still have to maintain those other things and so it's putting in place the infrastructure with your your teammates and your mm. to let them know like months in advance like hey in three months we're going to go out to market I'm going to disappear I'm going to do the best that I can to make sure that I'm you know, as available as possible, and if you need me, call me. But like, you know, we're gonna be packing four or five meetings a day to try to get this done as quickly as possible, so that we can move on. Um, so th- yeah, I, I think 100% is a full-time job, and and um, you should take it very seriously. And, that, and, and you don't want to do the the start stop. You don't, you know, yeah. Because if it takes you too long, then people think, oh, there might be something wrong with the company. Right. Why, like, why has why nobody else pulled the trigger? And it's very complex um there's another great book it's called like, venture deals and it explains mm. to you like half of the latin words that are explained in, like what is pro rata what are like what are those things that y- you see them in contracts you're like i have no idea what this means right um and so that was a really great book that i read but yeah i mean leverage your network and figure out who can help you
0: right um i think the last question that i had was a lot of people listening to this podcast are looking to join early stage companies what advice would you have for someone who's maybe not got experience in in fintech but they really are interested like how could they break into the space how do you think someone could differentiate themselves or what should they invest in learning in terms of knowledge or skills
1: Mm -hmm. i think it really depends on what the role is like Mm -hmm. if you're running if you're going for a job that's like something in compliance mm-hmm. and you don't have any compliance background it's gonna be really hard to break in there because you're gonna spend a lot of time although we do have a, a new team member ben who who is self-taught and it's amazing self-taught to kind of yeah he, he learned that's it. he's amazing. a certified like aml officer now and he learned it while he was out at his first startup in in wow. miami they just basically threw him a book which is like that's that's what you love that's what All you right. want to be able to find um one of our our company values is passion for your craft mm-hmm. and it's really just about like if you're a geek, own it and like you just really, you know, become obsessed with learning these types of things. And that's kind of how I got into payments mm. and how I learned so much about it and just picking up books and reading. Um, I think, you know, if you can demonstrate that you've done some of that homework, like for, mm. if you want to get in the payments space, I tell all my friends, there's this incredible book. It's by Glenn Brook Partners. It gives you the history of mm. payments because a lot of it seems so convoluted and a lot of it seems like it doesn't make sense. But when you have it within the context of history and why it kind of came about, then you're like, oh, no, makes I get it. Sense it, yeah. it works it Makes sense it why. Yeah, it makes sense Is why. it makes sense why it doesn't all make illogical? sense. Logical. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I think starting with those types of things and talking to people who are in your network, um, but at the end of the day, for for us, you know, we have a ton of people who are completely new at payments, and and when we interview them, we started. Oh, man, I'm going back to the consultant thing. We introduced a case study, uh, uh, which is not like the, how many ping pong balls can you fit mm. like in a Boeing 737? Mm. It's more so, let's give you something that's very similar to the job that you'll be doing. Got it. And how can you respond to it? And can you problem solve? I, as a, like, someone who didn't come from a software engineering background, someone who didn't come from a payment background, was able to pick up and start my own payment company. I do believe that anybody can pick mm. these types of things up, but it's a lot of like the mental horsepower and the hustle and the desire to kind of just obsess over it. And if you can find those tactics, you can teach anybody, anybody, anything.
0: Yeah. I think that's a great note to end the podcast. Thank you so much, Richie. It's been yes. amazing talk to you.
1: Thank you for having me.